0: Our scripture lesson today is taken from Matthew 2, starting at verse 13. This is the final scene in Matthew's first two chapters, uh, which present the birth of Christ. It also follows upon the visit of the Magi, or wise men, uh, to the place where Jesus was born. So Matthew 2:13 through 23. After the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. He was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem. Who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. When Herod died an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth. So that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we may discover your peace. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Over the past several months, I have focused my outside reading on the four books that constitute The Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro. It's about 3,000 pages of reading. I'm about halfway through. In another year, I'll probably be done. (laughs) Caro is now in his 80s and still promises to complete the fifth volume of the series on LBJ's time as president. One of the stunning portraits that Caro paints is that of Koch Robert Stevenson, who served as governor of Texas from 1941 to 1949, and whom Johnson barely defeated in a race for the United States Senate in an election whose results were highly questionable. Caro's opening portrayal of Stevenson is picturesque, both in what he says and in the way he says it. In all the vast and empty hill country, Carroll writes, there was no more deserted area than the 70 miles of rolling hills and towering limestone cliffs between the towns of Brady and Junction. Only a few widely scattered ranch houses dotted that a- area. For long stretches after night fell, Not a single light marked a human presence. Beginning in the year 1904, however, there was one light. It was the light of a campfire. Each night it was in a different location, for it marked the camp of a wagon traveling each week back and forth between Brady and Junction. Lying in the little circle of flickering light cast by the fire was a single person, a slender teenage boy. He would be lying beside the fire on his stomach reading a book. The boy was the son of impoverished parents. He was determined to be something more. And his determination had led him to haul freight between Junction and Brady. Older men, deterred by the loneliness of five nights alone each week in the trackless hills and by the seven dangerous, often impassable streams that would have to be forded on each trip, had refused even to try to do that. But the boy had tried and succeeded. The little freight line was beginning to pay. Yet he was determined to be something more. He wanted a profession and had written away to a correspondence school for textbooks on bookkeeping. So at night, he would be studying these textbooks in the little circle of light from his campfire. The boy was coke Robert Stevenson. Carroll concludes Stevenson's whole life was the raw material out of which the legend of the West is made. Now, I lived in Texas long enough and far enough West to have acquired some idea of what this scene involves, the dark, quiet, lonely, Yet dangerous place that the hill country is, and the sheer courage and ambition it took to haul freight across the land by day and to study bookkeeping by fire at night. Caro's portrait depicts raw human heroism of a young boy in the earliest stages. Of seeking his dreams. Whenever I encounter Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew, I cannot help but be drawn to the tremendous human effort he displayed in the first years of the life of his adopted son, Jesus Christ. Listen to the sparse way that Matthew describes all Joseph did. After the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now Joseph knew who Herod was. The Roman ruler who in light of the request of the Magi concerning where they might find the one born king of the Jews had immediately ordered the death of all children two years old and under so as to to be certain to eliminate Joseph's son as a potential threat to his kingdom and possessor of his crown. Herod was also the Roman ruler who had killed three of his own sons because he saw them as threats to his power. Joseph knew any person who could do that would not wince at the death of his own son. Thus Joseph's obedience to the angel's instruction was immediate. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. Can you imagine the sheer physical hardship involved in carrying out this decision? Traveling by night in the desert with a young mother who hours before has given birth and with an infant who is exposed to the elements. Trackless hills, as Caro said, not a single light marking a human presence if only Joseph had had one of the camels on which the wise men had brought him gifts. Matthew then tells us, again with almost no detail, that Joseph and his family remained there in the foreign land of Egypt until the death of Herod. Now most people who study the history of that period maintain that Christ was likely born in what we now label 6 B.C. or 6 B.C.E. and that Herod died two years later in 4 B.C.E. If they are correct, Joseph and Mary and their infant Jesus lived for two solid years in Egypt. Matthew does not depict the conditions in which they live, but it is likely one which made infant mortality so high in those days and places. Perhaps it was a refugee camp. Perhaps it was on the streets. Perhaps it was isolated in the desert. Perhaps it was at the home of someone they knew from their prior life or someone they had come to know as fellow refugees. Their quarters were likely less fancy than the silken palaces of Pharaoh's court that Joseph's ancestor and namesake in the book of Genesis had lived as a resident alien in Egypt over 1,700 years before. Then one day, word came suddenly that Herod had died. When Herod died, says Matthew, when Herod died. On May 2nd, 2011, the night that President Obama announced the death of Osama bin Laden, I was at Reagan Airport picking up my wife, Maggie, from a trip. I watched the announcement on monitors in the airport. And when she got off the plane, she told me that the pilot had made the same announcement when they were in midair. We retrieved her luggage, and then we made a decision to drive into D.C. to at least view the monuments from our car on this important evening. There were hundreds of people beginning to gather, mostly young, mostly students. They were in a contained but joyous celebration. We called each of our adult children on the phone. And as we were driving back home, we remarked that this was the first time that we fully appreciated how much the attacks of 9-11 had shaped the lives of our children. It felt odd, somewhat, to be celebrating the death of another human being, even one as evil as Osama bin Laden. But just as the words, when Herod died, came as good news to Joseph, the announcement that we had heard from the president came as good news to us. In light of the news to Joseph, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother And go to the land of Israel, for those who are seeking the child's life are dead. And as he had done before, Joseph again obeyed the words of the angel. He got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. In the two years since Joseph and his family had traveled to Egypt, not much had likely changed in Israel. The land was the same, the weather was the same, the technology of travel had not improved. Their child was older and squirmier, requiring more attention and monitoring, but nothing else had really changed. Along the way, Joseph had heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father, Herod. And Joseph was suddenly afraid to go back to Israel. Joseph's fear was an appropriate response to the political situation in the land to which he was returning. Archelaus and his two brothers had split the kingdom. Their father had left them. But Archelaus was the least liked of the three because of his dictatorial ways. His brutality was intolerable and he would be overthrown after just two years on the throne. But when Joseph was free to leave Egypt, Archelaus was still in power. So for the third time in this scene, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream leading Joseph to change his route and turn and go to Galilee in the north, where he then made his home in Nazareth. It is from Nazareth that three decades later, Joseph's son will set out and begin his ministry with baptism, temptation, Sermon on the Mount. Once Joseph gets Mary and Jesus to Nazareth, Joseph is never again referred to in the Gospel of Matthew. He may have slipped into a quiet and welcome obscurity. He may have passed away. He may simply not have been inclined to follow his son into the dangerous places his son would go. We do not know what happened to Joseph. But we can tell that he played a heroic and dangerous role in following the voice of an angel to become the father of the Messiah, to leave Israel for Egypt, and then to return to Galilee. Joseph may have been obscure, but Joseph did what matters. Now what points can we draw or deduce from this story or this depiction of Joseph? 1st i we've got four brief ones. Even though Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, in Matthew's telling, at least two ordinary people were instrumental in Christ's work of redeeming the world. One was Mary and one was Joseph. To be sure, God would have have accomplished that redemption without them and would likely have chosen someone else to play the roles they played. But Mary and Joseph accepted the roles and played the parts. Once Joseph's role was complete, he quietly exits the stage. Well done, good and faithful servant. Second, though the voice of God was clear to Joseph, coming to him through the voice of an angel, appearing to him through dreams, it still takes courage for Joseph to follow the voice. Joseph chose the power of the dream over dreams of power. Joseph chose action over passivity. Joseph chose movement over stasis setting out for a new land over remaining in the security of home. Joseph defied natural human gravity in favor of a riskier choice of following a dream and listening to the voice of an angel. Whenever the angel said, get up and go, Joseph got up and went. Third, in the long and complex history of the relationship Between church and state, faith and politics, obedience to God and obedience to earthly powers, Joseph faces the decision to obey the civil authority or to obey God. Now in Luke's gospel, Joseph obeys the order of the governor, the civil authority to travel to Bethlehem, and submit himself and his family to a census. In Matthew, Joseph chooses the opposite. He chooses to flee from the tyrannical power of Herod and to resist the ruler's demands for death. Thus, in one gospel, Joseph works with governing authorities. In another, he works against them. It is a choice that transcends Joseph's time. In every culture, in every decision, in nearly every moment, Christians and churches have to decide whether they support the particular actions of the state while still honoring civil authority as ordained by God or whether they oppose state action through some appropriate means. The questions are perennial for people and institutions of faith. Joseph's facing them and answering them in a particular way keep the questions before us in our day and time. And fourth, Joseph's plight reveals the tremendous human courage that many people display in leaving their own land for another land and in risking their lives, their children's lives, their future. Even the tenacity of a Koch-Stevenson does not exceed that of a refugee seeking freedom, seeking asylum, seeking, seeking escape from genocide and poverty and drugs and crimes and disease and hunger and hopelessness. Joseph crossed the borders into Egypt to spare his son. He returned home to Israel for the sake of his son. He relocated within Israel for the sake of his son. These actions together constitute a contribution this first-time father made to human history, indeed, to human redemption. The late Presbyterian poet Anne Weems once wrote, Who put Joseph at the back of the stable? Who dressed him in brown and put a staff in his hand and told him to stand at the back of the creche, background for the magnificent light of the Madonna? God chosen, she says. This man Joseph was faithful. In spite of the gossip in Nazareth, in spite of the danger from Herod, this man Joseph listened angels, and it was he who named the child Emmanuel. Is this a man to be stuck for centuries at the back of the stable? As a gesture of gratitude, she concludes, let's put Joseph in the front of the stable, where he can guard and greet and cast an occasional glance at this child who brought us life. I think I agree with Ann Weems. Let's put Joseph in front of the stable.